Welcome to Rocket Ship, the home of epic React Native content. I'm Simon Grimm, creator of Galaxies.dev, and today's guest is Theo Brown. Theo, you are streamer, CEO, founder, skateboarder, and also to jailbreak a Switch, manager of Minecraft servers, and you just recently hit 200k subs on YouTube. So <laughs> thank you for joining us, and uh, it's a pleasure to meet you here. Yeah, that's quite a set of things I've done when you put it like that. Jeez. Yeah, um, I mean, what do you tell people when they ask you what you do? Do you have like one main thing currently? I just say who's asking usually. Like it depends <laughs> entirely. Like I, it's impossible to cover all of the hats. And like, I'm not saying this to brag. I'm saying this because I have terrible crippling ADHD and it lets me keep myself entertained hopping between things all the time. But like, usually I just think through the context of who this person is, where I'm meeting them. And I go with the thing that makes the most sense. So I'm a... Uh, <laughs> Like when I'm talking to people at a TypeScript or like web devy event, I'll say that I am a YouTuber that does web tech stuff that's focused mostly on senior plus technologies because I was bored of the junior beginner focused stuff that existed on the platform at the time. When I talk to people at like TwitchCon, I say that I'm an ex Twitch staff that now runs a company building creator tools that also is a YouTuber focused on technology and software dev stuff. And to everybody else, I'm a skate nerd that got trapped in a tech job. That that is that should be your Twitter bio these days. That sounds really good. Yeah, um, yeah. I haven't even mentioned upload thing and ping.gg, which are your your main yeah your main company. Uh, we'll probably get mm -hmm. into them as well. Uh, today's topic will be around React Native. Um, we're going to talk a bit about React Native, where some other stuff. We're going to talk about React Server components and what it means for React Native, and hopefully also about the tech stack recommendations because you got a pretty cool thing with the T3 stack going on. So that's the broad scope for today. Before diving into all of that, I want to start with two apologies. So the first apology is that you have to join me here in Riverside while you have actually developed ping.gg, which is probably a superior tool. Um, and I should certainly check as it out. As long as the video source that you use in the actual upload is not the one that Riverside gives you, I'll be happy. But th this face deserves better than what Riverside will resolve. So <laughs> I love them for what they're doing. They're building some incredibly difficult to make software. I'm one of few people that knows the level of difficulty. But I don't trust the browser as a source of recording at this point in time. There's a reason that a lot of ping.gg's tooling was built around OBS, the open source standard for all modern broadcast. Yeah, um, I have used, what is my call? I think I used a special streaming Streamlabs desktop. That's what I use on the <laughs> Streamlabs okay. is a sketchy fork of, of the open source OBS that is an electron wrapper written in a combination of Vue and React because nobody could ever decide what to do. That is an absolute shit show and you need to switch to vanilla OBS. Okay, I will do this after the video. I'm glad I haven't done a lot of streaming lately. Yeah. Um, but, but my second apology after this one is that, honestly, originally, I didn't like you. Um, probably more precisely, I didn't like your content because I, I didn't know you personally, so I can only dislike your content. Um, you have very strong opinions, and I think at that point of time, they rubbed me the wrong way, and I probably wasn't ready for those opinions. So hear me out. I, I kept watching your videos because YouTube, of course, kept shoving down your content in my throat. Um, I don't know why. And I noticed that you are actually a really, really advanced React developer. You understand the shit you're talking about. You can simplify it. You know about React Native. You know about like how to put things into comparison um, 
and especially in a super easy way. So after that initial phase of disliking you, I finally got your content and I'm very thankful now at this point that I have found them and um, I'm super thankful for all that you do. You're helping millions of developers. Um, and I guess you, you probably know this. If you have strong opinions, you get a lot of hate on YouTube. I even get hate, although I don't have strong opinions. And it's not even, uh, it's not always easy to, to handle all the hate, right? Yeah, I... I knew it was coming. I never expected anything less. And the things that frustrate me aren't necessarily the hate. It's the the reads that are just so far from reality. Like like the two that annoy me the most. The first one is that I am drama baiting for the clicks. My drama content almost always gets the worst viewership of the content that I produce. It does okay on Twitter in terms of like views and interactions, but on any platform that matters like YouTube, it just doesn't perform. When I cover most drama topics, it just doesn't do well. It's not that clickable and it has a really short lifespan. Mm. And so it's always funny but frustrating when people accuse me of being dramatic or starting these things just for the views when those almost always hurt my channel some amount and they hurt my sentiment a ton i do them because i actually care about that thing enough like i don't start drama unless i care a lot and i've consistently raised the bar for where i start to care nowadays <laughs> That's the, probably a smart decision yeah yeah i i've been much better lately in terms of like the only people i go after now are like dhh i think that's it <laughs> like i've drawn my line and it's and it's continuing to recommend single-threaded Rails servers to growing companies in 2024. <laughs> Anything past that, and I like just do your thing. I don't care. But that like that's a hard line I have drawn, and it requires 400,000 followers that are incredibly misled. <laughs> <laughs> um, you you also have a hate for another technology, which you're gonna probably talk about. In a I, I'm nice to the Flutter people. <laughs> well, I'll be careful with the F word. I right the F word. Yeah. Yeah. I. I've had many an opportunity to be much harsher on Flutter that I have not taken. And there are people in the community I do really trust and recommend, like Luke Pagetti's, honestly, one of my go-to resources for mobile as a whole. He's really, really talented and keeps a pulse on everything going on. Flutter happens to be the thing he has chosen, but he recognizes its shortcomings and knows it's not ideal for even most things. And it's also one of the biggest like proponents of pushing for Flutter for web to be killed because that was a mistake. Ugh. Anyways. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're going to get into the F word in a second. Um, before that, I would just love to know, um, you. so as a little bit of background, you worked at Twitch. Um, you are partly uh, responsible for having you and Primogen streamers doing their thing right now, because uh, I think you mentioned that previously only gamers were allowed on, on Twitch, and then you helped uh, make the path for normal people. But you started, I think, with Elixir back then. So how did you then transition into React Native? How, how did all of that happen? And when, when was actually the last time you used React Native? Because last year at Chain React, I think you said I used it the last time three years ago and before that six years ago. So that basically brings me back to like 2015 or... Okay, long, long story. I'll, I'll do my best. So... One of my earliest software dev things was Android, 
when I was in high school, the same time I was like starting to host Minecraft servers, I was starting to ROM and install custom software on my Droid and then my Droid X and helped with the introduction of the second init kernel on the Droid X because it was one of the first Android phones with a locked bootloader, so you couldn't run a custom kernel. So in like the early Docker days, we kind of copied how that worked to run our own custom kernel that would bind to the actual kernel running so that we wouldn't have to swap kernels and trigger the boot lock. So just got nerdy with a lot of those details, helped maintain the CyanogenMod mod port for the Droid X for a tiny bit. And started trying to build apps and kept going back to the firmware because it was it felt at the time it felt easier to contribute to android than to contribute to or build an android app because the tools for it were just so rough i then begrudgingly got a macbook because i was going to college and it was the only computer with a battery in it so when that happened i started trying out osx at the time now mac os and had dual booted with linux and windows but found myself just using macOS more because I could run a real bash terminal and also run Photoshop and like real creative software at the same time with no virtualization. It was the only operating system that could do that and to this day still mostly is. Because of that, I just found myself in macOS more and more. And then a friend gifted me an old iPhone. It wasn't even that old. It's like an iPhone 5. I tried it, fell in love, jailbroke it, started writing custom software because I was so in love with iOS 7 in this rethinking of how UI on mobile worked that I just tried to start building apps and it was too hard. I failed and gave up. And then the Pebble watch came out, which was the perfect thing for me because the software was so stupid and simple, but it was entirely focused around the design. So I made a watch face called InSquare that was the first like even somewhat viral thing I ever built. Eh, my microservice count to some amount, but made the watch face. That did pretty well. I then just tried and failed again at mobile app development, gave up on that, went to just contributing random open source stuff at school, mostly around Chrome extensions and random Python stuff. Got my job at Twitch on a whim because the manager for that team was so excited to make this non-gaming section happen that I is like, at the time, kind of like an ex-gamer where I had played games a lot. I was deep when I was younger, but was much more focused on art and music and also a decent programmer not a very good one at the time though this particular manager just really liked me and decided to take the risk and brought me on not even full-time as a contractor for three months and if i did well enough i would be able to go full-time and i didn't i got renewed another three months and then finally full-timed and that team was entirely underwater trying to build the tech for the marathons that twitch was running mm -hmm. at the time there was a laptop in a back room with a sticky note that said, please don't close that had a VLC playlist with all the Bob Ross episodes in order and a screen capture being streamed out to Twitch. And we were trying to build software to run this for real. They were trying to do it in rails at the time because that's what Twitch was built on. It was not going great. Waba, the manager I had at the time, the guy running that team's eng, was really nerdy about the Erlang virtual machine in Elixir and was convinced it was the simplest technology to take some Rails developers and get them building concurrent systems to process video that would actually work. And God damn it, he was right. It was incredible. And I got to get deep into functional programming, mm -hmm. systems, video encoding, and like just managing crazy concurrent systems in my first year at Twitch. And 
it was, I just got to learn so much so fast and it was an incredible experience. I made dumb mistakes like forgetting to capitalize a letter causing production outages because there was no good linting or type <laughs> systems really in the language at the time, but fell in love with the flexibility and control I had of my systems when I built that way. And the functional data flows were just a much better way for me to understand my applications. Up until that point, I almost didn't feel like I was supposed to be a programmer because OO just never clicked the same way for me. Then I got moved to a new team. Well, it wasn't even a new team. Then the team I was on, the non-gaming creative org team, collapsed and I got thrown to VOD, which was the video team for once the stream's done, how we play back video. I joined the back end because at the time I still hated front end stuff. Was working in their new system, which was Go. And I just hated it. I couldn't enjoy myself working in Go no matter what the fuck I did. It just didn't work for me. So I begrudgingly, after my manager pushed me to try it, gave the new front end rebuild that we were working on at the time a shot. And they were using React and TypeScript, which happened because a company Twitch acquired hated the mess of an Ember.js code base we were in so much that rather than contribute to it, they rewrote it before they got permission to. And by the time anyone could have axed it, it was too far along and too much better. <laughs> so I started helping with that port and just quickly fell in love with React. So much so that three weeks after I joined this team, it collapsed and I got thrown to the safety org. I didn't even care because I was just having so much fun building stuff on the new website and like making this port happen. That very quickly accelerated my career. I got promoted. I started helping hire a ton of people. I started having impact not just within like my org on safety, but across many orgs at Twitch, helping push the web platform forward. And it was so cool getting to like be that deep and really push things. But one of the things I never got to touch was the mobile app because the mobile teams were super siloed. The iOS and Android teams were their own different worlds that we would regularly have to barter with and honestly battle with in order to get anything done. Even getting a ban chatter button on the mobile app required a lot of like political back and mm. forth and like trading headcount and shit. And it just sucked. I knew that the or at the same time I saw all the cool stuff going on with React Native and I knew there had to be a way to bridge this gap. Some poor soul from the iOS team was at some point in 2016 asked to go investigate this React Native thing and came to the conclusion that it wasn't ready for Twitch. And they wrote a blog post about it that was continuously referenced for the next five years of my life <laughs> as I tried to get them to consider it as an option. Eventually, when a hack week happened in, I believe it was the end of 2020, I put together or I wrote a proposal for building a creator focused mobile app with React Native as both a way to experiment with the technology and also to add a lot of the creator-focused tools that the mobile team was dragging their feet on. I thought we could have like an example of one or two features maybe in the week that we had. Turns out we had 3.5 days and we built a full replacement for the Twitch app from scratch in that time. That was a way better experience. And I did that with seven engineers, one PM and one designer. And obviously we won the hackathon and my reward was a trophy I have in the back and an HR warning because the mobile team was so fucking pissed at me. <laughs> at which point I resigned because I was just done. And I realized like no matter how good of a solution is built, it doesn't matter because this isn't about building the right thing for the users anymore. This is about the, the political game of like getting your promotions and like doing all this weird shit that I didn't like. I then went to the startup world when I was working on the React Native app, 
I made an Expo account because we were using that for our like early versions. And the Expo team saw someone with a Twitch TV email address sign up and reached out. So I maintained that connection. We continued chatting afterwards. I went to a startup where we were building random music tech stuff. I continued working with Expo through that, spent like a year or so building React Native Expo apps. I was one of the earliest consumers of the Expo dev, or dev launcher where you can install the Expo binary in your own application and do like the QR code scanning and all that dev workflows before they'd even announced it, we were using it for like, I think it was nine months after we'd started using it, they finally announced it publicly. So accidentally super early consumer on that. And then I left that company, started building tools for creators and creators just didn't use their phones much for things other than like a quick recording or a TikTok. And we were really focused on things like what we're doing here. And I do this on a really expensive computer with a really expensive camera and audio setup. So our focus has been that stuff. That all said, I still dive into React Native regularly for one-off stuff we do. Like one of our customers uses Ping to do in-person anime installations where they have anime. Or there's a whole culture called VTubing where people use face tracking to turn themselves into an anime character and then stream like that or do events like that or do even live concerts like that. And they've taken a liking to Ping because we're the best way to do low latency, high quality video distribution for any type of high quality production event. So they use us to embed a VTuber in front of a stage at a concert in HD with low latency and high quality audio. Or in the case for us using React Native, they have an iPad that they full screen the VTuber on and then put them on like a Segway so they can walk <laughs> around at an event. And we built them a bespoke app for that. And the only way that is viable is with technologies like React Native and Expo because any other solution isn't going to let us iterate that fast and doesn't have the tooling necessary to reuse the logic and other shit we've built to make it work in the first place. Uh, yeah, um, I, I, so much to unpack here. I definitely want to get into React Native uh, and, and the superpowers of React Native in a second again and uh, why it empowers your app and why it's uh, the logical choice. I mean, your backstory is impressive as well, which shows that you have both the skills for React and React Native acquired at Twitch. Um, and you've been, yeah, been there early. I've been also been early. I think in 2015 or 2016, I made a video like, is React Native the next big thing? I still joke that after that, I did like seven years of Ionic and Angular content. And that one video was my most popular video all the time. And just last year, I understood that, hey, Simon, maybe you should get back into React Native. And yeah, guess guess when my channel started to explode again. But um so you tried um, React Native and used it. Now, my question, and don't get, get mad at me, why do you dislike Flutter then so much? It, it sounds like you haven't really used it. You probably just gave it a try, just like all of us did. I did as well. I found it to, to be easy to get started. Like you have this Swift UI kind of thing where you've wrote your UI. Yeah, I know this can get like a pyramid if you, you suck and it, it looks just horrible, but... It kind of was easy to get started. I had some problems with it as well, but you seem to have like a like a huge grudge against Flutter. So could you just like I don't want to talk it, too much about Flutter, but could you give us the the story about this? Flutter has all the problems people pretend React Native has. It's not actually native. It doesn't render anything from the native platform. It, it Flutter's closer to a game engine than it is to an application runtime. React Native, in the end, all it does 
is run some JavaScript to tell the native app layer what things to put where. But it is commanding your native applications and your native SDKs to do those native things. And this is why other things like the incredible work being done to make solid work on mobile or make view work on mobile, all of these alternatives are just using React Native's bindings because that's what makes it so powerful. React Native has built an incredible generic layer to write a UI once and have it run on all of these platforms using the correct native technologies. And Flutter is the opposite of that. Yeah, so <clears throat> I mean, Flutter is getting better. I think whenever you do a video or you did like a last video, this is my last video on Flutter. Uh, and then people said, hey, yeah, but next year this and that is coming out and, and whatnot technology. And, and it never shifts. <laughs> and we're, we're moving away. It never has. Um, yeah, but my, my problem with this is that people also ask me all the time, well, what is better, Flutter or React Native? And I usually also say React Native at this point. But if you as a developer come into the like cross-platform space and you look at the numbers, you look at like the surveys, you're going to see, oh, Flutter actually has surpassed React Native. Just recently, somebody posted, I don't know, more apps are built with Flutter on the App Store than with React Native. Although Evan Bacon just... just Show me a good yeah, one. Yeah, exactly. But I've been saying this since it started. I have yet to use... It's almost a little sound like I did find one. But out of the years I have spent searching... I found one Flutter app that doesn't suck. Literally singular one. And the only reason this one doesn't suck is they are consuming all of the early like Flutter 3 and the new runtime stuff that hasn't been exposed to most people yet. And they're using the, I think it's the new Impeller engine, mm, yeah. if I recall, that no one else is using yet. And it has a bunch of bugs, especially for accessibility, like the screen reader stuff just doesn't work yet. But it actually is pretty smooth and there's some really cool animations the app i believe it was called wonders yeah it was like was it like like triple a check that thing quick. or something in that space it was like a, a museum oh, yeah, type thing cool. that just shows off like the great wall and the petra and these fancy animations mm -hmm. as you scroll through it like it is really cool when you like zoom through and you mm -hmm. want these fancy like animations and shit this i don't want to figure out how to do on <laughs> react native and i'll give them credit there like if your app is more animation than it is useful, Flutter's a great technology. If the thing you're building is closer to a game than an application, Flutter's a good option. If you're in that uncanny valley between an application that people use to like write text and stuff and an actual video game, there is a space between those. Like a great example here is Rive. They're an animation studio trying to compete with Lottie and the chaos around doing like After Effects animations in the browser and mobile apps. Rive is a great use case for Flutter because they're way more focused on the animations and fluidity than they are on the buttons and how they behave on different platforms. And it doesn't necessarily matter how, like, like the accessibility for the vision impaired in an animation studio is a less big deal than support for vision impaired in almost any other consumer software. I, I mean, I totally get why Flutter sucks and, and your stance on, on like why it's so bad. I just have this question, like, why is it still so popular? Like, in all these surveys, why do people still say, oh, Flutter is the next big thing and we're using Flutter? But then again, also, you look at jobs and you don't really see a lot of Flutter jobs. So where are the numbers coming from? Are these just, like, new developers seeing the shiny thing and, and like, doing the hello hello world this and, is, and submitting this? Or This is why I'm so anti-Flutter. That is what it is from everything I've seen. Like, I, I have looked, and in looking, I have found, like... One of the things that breaks my heart, I don't want to call it specific names, but when I look at the other Flutter influencers, other than Luke, they all just 
don't know what they're talking about when it comes to software development. And they'll even like challenge each other because one will just say something really stupid. Like uh, one of the debates about accessibility just made me want to pull, like just rip my hair out hearing them say that accessibility is not that important. It just like, and then like battling each other over it. it. It's frustrating how much infighting and just dumbassery there is in that community. And when I see the few awesome people in it get stuck underneath it, it just sucks. Compared to something like Angular, I see a bit of that there too, where there's a few people who recognize like other tools or other tools and technologies have figured out how to do these things better. We need to learn these lessons. But everybody inside has just gotten so used to being against mm -hmm. the other things that they can't see the value in what they're doing. And that's the case with Flutter. They're so mad at React Native for existing that they refuse to do any of the things it does right. And Flutter, if Flutter is like if you had someone who doesn't build mobile apps really understand how this stuff works, make like a list of the reasons you would use React Native and a list of the problems that it, you could have with React Native, that spec sheet is what <laughs> Flutter is. Yeah, that's a perfect, um, perfect place to, to stop talking about Flutter because I, I see um, we, we don't like it as the, as the uh, conclusion here. Um, so I would love to work my way gradually to React Native and before we get into React Native, a quick stop in, in the middle, probably, between things that really suck and things that are really great. So last year at Chain React, you had also, I think it was a diagram or something, and you mentioned Ionic there, which kind of surprised me because I felt like I'm, I'm the only one still talking about Ionic, and uh, it's a super small niche. And you said that Ionic is an option, I mean, especially by in combination with Capacitor, which basically wraps your web application into a native app so you can access native SDKs. And you get some points not correct in there, as you said, like Ionic, but most of the stuff is actually Capacitor. Ionic is just like the UI layer. But anyway, um, you said it's an option in, in some cases. But at the same time, I just like a few weeks ago, you had a video on the, on the rising stars of JavaScript where you said uh, the need for tools like Ionic and Capacitor will die down. So what is the your standpoint currently on things like Ionic and Capacitor? Do they have a spot? Do they will they continue to have a spot in the future? I feel like they're increasingly legacy tools, specifically with the introduction of push notifications on progressive web apps on iOS. That was the biggest reason by far to do a native app was to get the customer retention possible from having a native application versus a browser app. And the push notifications was like a significant percentage of why. So as those barriers continue to break and companies like Starbucks continue to invest in making progressive web apps a meaningful way to get and maintain customers, the need for a tool like Ionic will go down because it's already like one of those, what I call uncanny valley technologies, where it's between two extremes, but these extremes are very close. One of them is a web app to progressive web app, and the other is React Native to native. And in that space in between, there just isn't much room, and it's closing in more and more as React Native gets easier to adopt, and uh, like progressive web app technologies get more and more capable relative to native applications. Yeah, I, I kind of, I mean, I noticed the same pattern, uh, so that's why I'm kind of made the transition last year into more React Native-focused content. I feel like Ionic um, and Capacitor are currently a lot focused on, on enterprise applications. And I feel that really makes sense because enterprise is using a lot of Angular, like especially here in Germany. I hear that many are still using Angular because of like various reasons that speak for Angular. 
And you can quickly like build internal tools with things like Ionic and Capacitor. So probably that's like the the only small niche they will continue to exist in. I think a lot of that niche or niche is going to get lost to all of these AI tools plus stuff like Retool. Retool has a mobile application now. And with that, there's a lot you can do. If people aren't familiar with Retool already, it's a drag and drop connect to everything interface for anyone to quickly build like an admin panel for going through invoices at your company and having the ability for anyone with even a little bit of code experience to like fumble their way through linking these random data stores and some weird like analytics tool you use in your Stripe and having UI that they can use on their phone without having a real like full salaried engineer involved is going to massively disincentivize the use of these tools in those places. Is the use of Retool really that easy? I, I haven't personally used it yet. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah. It's annoying. It frustrates me. And there's even new tools like, okay, bias alert, I invested in Refine, but they're an open source alternative built with React and a lot of the stuff that we use every day to make it really easy to quickly connect a React component to some crazy data store that your company's still using from the IBM days. Those bindings and those links have always been the hardest part. And as those gaps get plugged, the technology underneath is something you won't even notice anymore. And I think we're close to that point and these new tools are just leaps and bounds better than embedding a web app. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious about the future of Ionic as well. I said this publicly as well. Um, they've been acquired by OutSystems about one, one and a half years ago at this point. Um, and it's gotten a bit like slowed down the process, I think. Uh, they initially said they're going to keep doing their stuff and they keep investing in open source and I kind of felt like everything's been slowing down and OutSystems is a company for also building, what, is, what are they doing? Like low-code tools, I think. Um, and I think they want in, in, yeah, to internally no use Ionic. So I hope it's not completely ending up as just some random internal tool used in a low-code editor, but currently it's kind of on that trajectory. So that's all I got to say about Ionic at this point. By the way, I just looked at Refine and, and saw Veed, a quick Quick anecdote, last December I was in, in Paris and we were walking through the streets and crossed some, some traffic lights and then the parents were screaming to their children, Viet, 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 <laughs> because I think Viet basically means hurry up or something in, in French. Uh, so yeah. we should always call this Viet. Initially, I also call it Viet. So folks always call it Viet. Yeah. There's a bunch of Vites too. There's also Vitesse and Vitesse with an E at the end, which are also really fast tools and technologies. So, fast tools and technology, yeah. perfect transition. Thanks for giving me that. <laughs> we want to talk more about React Native. Um, if you had... <laughs> I thought you said fast. If you, you could pick one thing from React Native that you would accredit as React Native's superpower. I know you had a full video on this that people can check out on your channel. What, what do you think is React Native's true superpower? The biggest one that I push is over there updates. I think it is incredibly underrated how valuable of a feature that is at every scale. I've heard a lot of arguments that, well, if your app team is good at making things, it doesn't matter if you have to be two weeks ahead of Apple's review queue because you have everything months ahead. I promise you, at every single scale, things slip through the cracks. In fact, at bigger scales, more things exist and there are more cracks for them to fall in. The ability to quickly patch the button being visible on a smaller iPhone viewport than you remember to test in for your new UI 
is way more important than feeling good that you happen to pick this new technology flutter and made your app slower and less accessible. Yeah, it's it, like, like over the air updating for those that don't know is the ability to make changes to your application without having to ship a new binary. So if I ship, let's say I'm Facebook and I have four types of posts in the news feed. I want to add a fifth type of post. Maybe I currently have single video posts and I want to be able to have three videos in a post instead. I shouldn't have to add this all to the native app and ship that with a feature flag to Apple to get reviewed two weeks plus of lead time before I get sent it to users who might take years to update if they ever even do. The vast minority of users are on the latest app for the software they use, and many will just stop updating out of rebellion or paranoia that the new versions have problems that they don't want to have. And if you don't have control over the version of the software consuming the things from your endpoints, you don't have control of what their device is doing anymore. And the level of backwards compatibility you have to build into every single thing you do when you don't control the version the user connects with is maddening. And then you have these small problems, like I mentioned before. Someone uses your app on a device that's smaller than you tested on, and the button can't be clicked because it's out of the viewport. Now you have to go through your company's long review process, long deployment cycle, get it in the new app, two weeks of testing, then Apple reviews it, and then maybe the user who had that problem updates. But you continue having people reporting that problem because they're not on the newest version. Over-the-air updates mean that you've separated the binary that has like the native code from the things that control most of your UI, which is the React Native layer, and you can just swap that out whenever the hell you want. Obviously, you have to follow Apple's guidelines. You can't use this to add a feature they didn't approve of. You can do that with any technology anyways, but the fact that that's possible here seems to have people upset. Yeah. It enables you to not have to go through Apple for these types of quick bug fixes, problems, swapping the color palette for a holiday, those types of changes that a responsible developer or responsible team can recognize don't need app store reviews. It just makes everything better for everyone. And if you're not able to fix things within minutes and you're required to go at the speed of Apple and their reviews to fix an issue, you're not just hurting your business or your ability to reach those users. You're hurting those users because they're now dealing with problems in their software for longer than they should have to because you had an opinion about technology. So I hope that opinion is really well-founded if you're not taking advantage yeah, of that Yeah, I completely power. agree. Over-the-air updates are just incredibly easy, especially if you tie it then into like Expo EAS where you can like just push your code, it builds and submits to the store. It's like unbelievable fast. You said like two weeks. In my in my like history, Apple and Google have gotten faster, but I think you meant two weeks, like in total of internal politics and then the review process. Depends specifically if you're already in that gray area with Apple because they don't like the way you're monetizing your app. Every update, including bug fixes, takes two weeks. That still happens at certain scales, and it's it like not fun. Is it like they generally take longer for bigger apps? Like, let's say Facebook wants to update their app. Will they take, like, two, three weeks in general? It's not that they will take two to three weeks in general. It's the delta doesn't get smaller. There will sometimes just be a time where they take longer, and you can nudge and be like, hey, we need this one to go out faster. And you can pull that card a certain number of times a year before they start ignoring those requests, which sucks when they're important. But it still takes weeks to get it out sometimes, especially when you include that Twitch specifically had a policy where they had to have something stable in the 
test flight builds for two weeks before it could go to the real app for review for another two weeks. So it would regularly, from when the code merged to when users saw it for the first time, take a yeah, month. Yeah, that's, that's bonkers. Um, especially if that's like yeah. critical. And this is also not accounting for the fact that some users yeah. don't update their apps automatically or wait to do the update, and that can be months of additional so lead th time. So this also transitions nicely into the discussion I want to have about React server components, because you currently set this already uh, a tiny bit, and you also said this, I think, at some, some talk, that you cannot ship at the speed of Apple and Google. That's the main problem. My question first, before we get into React server mm -hmm. components, is why are they not improving on this Like, why are Apple and Google not doing something about this? Because they need to hear the voices from the community and people saying, this is this sucks, I can't do this two weeks, I need to find different ways. So we find this over-the-air update basically to circumvent their app review process, although it's usually in accordance with Apple. But why are they not doing something about this? Because we figured it out for them. <laughs> I think it really comes down to that. Like, why would they? It doesn't seem like it's affecting them at all. Doing it right doesn't make them more successful. Apple has no incentive to make Xcode better right now. It doesn't make them sell more iPhones. It doesn't retent users any better. It does nothing. The people who build iPhone apps will continue building iPhone apps. And if Apple's tools aren't good enough, they'll use I mean, React they Native instead. I mean, they would increase the company satisfaction of companies building mobile applications. Why do they care? They have to yeah. do it anyways. Nobody builds mobile applications because it's so fun to <laughs> do, do it anymore. I do, I <laughs> do. At least for learning purposes, that's, that's by the way a great start, as you also did. Sorry, <laughs> nobody ships mobile applications for the fun of it because building one and shipping one are different tiers. And it's so funny when you look at something like Vercel, where when I want to ship my website, I go to Vercel, I click the GitHub button, I click the repo, and now it's on the web. That versus actually shipping a mobile app, the gap there is not worth going through unless there's money on the other side of it. And as such, the idea of hobbyist mobile devs just isn't particularly large right now. And I think that Apple and Google have embraced that. They don't lose anything from that. And they are also able to spend less money on app reviews and all the other things, especially the research to innovate on these platforms. I have a about that. I actually sometimes drop a folder just into that. I'm, I'm on, usually on Netlify and I just drop a folder into that and it hosts my application. It's, it's still mind-blowing uh, how easy it is these days compared to releasing yep. a native application where I yeah. suddenly also need 20 friends that have an Android phone, which I don't have 20 friends and They also don't have Android phones, uh, but that's that's a different story. We wanted to get into React Server Components. So my standpoint on React Server Components was always that I don't care about your fancy web stuff. I'm a mobile developer, and I don't need this. And I will close my eyes and don't look at the stuff that you're doing. So why should I or we as mobile developers, as React Native developers, care about React Server Components? Because JSON... Or Because more often than not, JSON is not the ideal format for an application to receive when querying an API. When I am getting my news feed on Facebook, I don't care about what shape that news feed is in. I don't care that it has a title, that it has content, that it has a date, that it has media that's in this shape. I just care about how it renders. Because we expect APIs to return a JSON blob, Most mobile applications are now JSON to UI translators, where it takes this JSON blob, it formats it the way you want for your UI, and then you create a bunch of components on that device 
to render all of the different potential conditions of that JSON. This also means that every single permutation of that JSON possible needs to be in existing JavaScript or whatever native language on your device in order to translate that JSON into the UI that you expect it to be. What if instead of the JSON describing the data that then gets turned into a UI via your code on the user's device, why can't the server send the right transformation to you to render on the device? Why do I have to send you JSON just for you to translate that to React, just for that to be translated to native? Why can't I just send you what React should render? That's the concept of but, server components. I mean, on the web, this is pretty easy done in rendering, but how could this translate to React Native as we have like different elements and, and need to render them differently? What would the server ship to, to my application in that case? Instructions the exact same way React Native currently works. In the end, there is still a concept of a virtual DOM that is the tree that represents all of the components that you've rendered. The difference here is that when you first fetch data from the server, that is saying what the initial shape of your tree in your React application should be. Hydration can exist on React regardless of if there is a DOM. This idea that there is a structure that exists by the time the runtime starts that it can fill in. That initial structure, the things that exist in the app before React takes over, or even afterwards with refreshing, that can exist outside of the browser itself. Most of what makes server components so interesting has nothing to do with the browser. It's this concept of the server sending a structure and then React filling in the leafs on the structure that actually need to be interactive. Because your application has a lot of parts that aren't interactive in the traditional sense. Even your little nav bar on the bottom, the whole container for it, the lines between every element, the top and bottom of it, the background of it, those elements are all static. Those don't change. You shouldn't need JavaScript on your device, not just to like describe where that is right now, but to encode how that works, how that's shaped and all of the properties of it. That shouldn't be code that exists in your JavaScript on your device because it never changes. Why can't the server say what that is? And then on the rare occasion it changes, you get that so, update. So if I get you right, you're promoting basically loading my whole React Native application as React server components. Whereas I, I just a few days ago talked to Shimon Ripschak, who did a talk on this in, in Berlin currently. He said like, you should have like a, a native shell, which is like the, the tab bar and probably like the status bar or anything. But you, it sounds like what you promote is just do everything with React server components. I promote whatever they've decided is best. I very much trust the React core team to figure this out. They've been working on it really hard. The way I conceptualize it is through things like the tab bar and the top level like menu bars. I think something people get afraid of when they hear React server components is the idea that a server is always necessary for those things to work. The same way you can have a cached JSON response, you can have a cached server component response. Whatever the last thing you received was, it can still be there the same way we do with an API call. Like when I open up Twitter, it's not empty until it fetches data. It's showing me the old data until it fetches data. That's how server components will work as well. Whatever the last thing you sent in your response to that device was is what it's going to show. It's the way I've chosen to describe it is Think of it as really granular over-the-air updates. Rather than over-the-air updates being a thing that happens when you change views or when you open the app, it's a thing that happens when you fetch data. And it's returning the correct JavaScript, so to speak, and the correct shape for that part of what that data fetches. So every component, every location where you're fetching data, that piece now can be updated as part of that Yeah, fetch. I think that description makes sense and 
sounds logical, especially like trying to understand the benefits compared to over-the-air updates. I think over-the-air updates will always replace your whole JS bundle. And with uh, RSC, we could just have like, I just want this one thing to be updated in the future. So is this like the next big thing you see for React Native? Are you that bullish on, on RSCs? Absolutely. The biggest fear I have is, well, the fear of servers that React Native and generally native developers seem to have. I used to have a conception of like, because I, I came from mobile as well as backend, that web devs were on one side of a spectrum, backend devs were on the other, and native and React Native devs were somewhere in the middle. I was wrong. Those native and React Native devs are like past web devs in terms of how far away they are from servers. They hate them. They're allergic to them. When you tell them they have to authenticate, they look at you with a death stare. They, they are why Flutter, or not Flutter, they are why Firebase exists, and I will never forgive them oh, for we, it. Oh, we, we have to talk about Firebase as well. <laughs> didn't, didn't you just roast Superbase oh, because no. you can inject some functions? <laughs> no, I, I, I didn't roast Superbase. I like, Super, or I like Superbase. I don't like some of the practices that they unintentionally promote that come from the Firebase mindset. The mindset of... You don't need a real backend server. We'll just do that for you. Give us the right permissions for your data and your rows, and we'll figure it out. The just give the key to the client. It's okay. They can hit it. They'll be fine. And that that stresses me out. API design is too important. It's like I, I can't even come up with good analogies. It's so frustrating. It's like learning how to skateboard without knowing how to put together a skateboard. Like you need to know how to assemble the parts at the very least. That's like baseline for me. And Flutter encourages a level of ignorance that makes me uncomfortable, which a lot of people are going to call me contradictory for because I recommend Vercel. The reason I recommend Vercel and things like it is they aren't taking away the ownership of the parts. They're giving you really well-assembled primitives to assemble. And I've actually found it to be easier to teach people how these technologies work together and interop when your life isn't configuring 500 files in random languages and it's instead linking together these pieces. And with Firebase... It just does a lot and does it in really strange ways that are full of everyone's favorite word lock-in as well as chaotic anti-patterns. And I just flutter scares or Firebase scares me and the things I've seen people do with it always concern me. And I like Superbase at the very least. It's an open source alternative. And at the very best, it's one of the best ways to host Postgres as a serverless developer. The, the hell of getting your PG bounce and everything correct is annoying. And again, if you're looking to build your own applications yourself with full stack control and understanding with tools like Vercel, I highly recommend Superbase because they handle a lot of those pieces for you. Whereas Firebase is giving up all ownership and agency so that you don't have to own a backend server. And that, that's yeah. a compromise that it's doesn't make sense It's funny how the, the trend kind of shifted. So I've been very early with Superbase, like two or three years ago. I was using it when it was in beta. And I mean, at that point, it was super early days and everyone kept, was still talking about Firebase. I don't know if it's because I'm in like the, the tech, Twitter, YouTube bubble, but nowadays pretty much everyone's talking about Superbase and I don't hear or see Firebase mentioned a lot anymore. Is this what you feel as well? Yeah, I, I will say I don't feel like I see much of either at this point in time, but Superbase I definitely see quite a bit more. Generally, I've I've seen a lot less loyalty around specific data platforms and things like that because the options have all, for the most part, gotten good enough that you go with what fits your needs the best. And 
Firebase in particular, there just isn't any hype around and hype tends to drive the narrative. Like no one's getting excited about Firebase right now. That's just the reality. And it was an exciting concept at the time and we owe it for pushing the expectations of developers for good tools that integrate their database, their backend and their front end. But you don't do that by erasing the back end. And I'm um, yeah, thankful I still new options like are recognizing 2015, that. I gave a talk in a German conference about using Ionic with Firebase and how quickly you can develop apps and have authentication. And everyone was like shocked. And I gave that talk twice because they found it so good. And now I was considering submitting a proposal to AppJS and React Native Conference. I was thinking about, oh, I could do something with Superbase. And I'm like, yeah, at this point, nobody cares really. It's it's nothing special anymore. But I think we see a lot of content about Superbase also because they're heavily investing in marketing. And I also have been sponsored by Superbase. They have sponsored some of my videos on YouTube. And I know that they're doing like these content storms and weeks where they push out and blow up your whole feed of Superbase content. So, but I want to go back to what you said before that the React Native developers are really scared of backend. We're going to have a problem because Expo Router and API routes are around the corner. So uh, I want to get your, your, your stance on that in a second. But I want to slowly move into this by first talking about the T3 stack uh, that you have made po made popular. Let's let's call it like you probably I think you used it at ping.gg as your stack and then kind of stripped it away as a recommended technology stack. Could you describe what it is? And I learned that it's not Tailwind, TRPC, and uh, a TypeScript. It's just T3 is your your name and your brand, right? Yep. So it's just the three letters after the T. It was a lazy abbreviation that rolled off the tongue well. And when the GGTLD came out, I was able to snag T3.GG relatively early. I've had that domain since before React Native was even a thing. So. I it, well before Tailwind and TRPC were a thing. So anybody who th claims that I'm retroactively taking my name back, the receipts are there. Anyways, I created the T3 stack because I vividly remembered when I was in college seeing the mean stack and just the hype around that and then Mern soon after and how exciting it was just to have a, a, a phrase for that era it wasn't just the tech that that represented. It was the the mindset of assembling these pieces in a way that represented a like a moment in time. And I missed that. I felt like we hadn't had that since. And these new technologies around React did more, but also required a bit more piecemealing to use well. And I wanted to to, to both make a good set of options that I liked to use and make this an easy, accessible recommendation for others looking to build stuff, and also solidify this moment in time for my own sake so I could have this to reference in the future. I call it the T3 stack because I was T3 and it was the stack that I used. I had been talking about it a little bit in like Twitter spaces. At the time I had like 400 followers, not even. Tanner Lindsley liked me because I asked him good questions and that was about it. I had just discovered TRPC through Tanner because he wanted me to, to look into it for him because he heard they were using React Native or he heard they were using React Query and I was the TypeScript and full stack type safety nerd. So I went and looked into it, was blown away, started using it a bunch at Ping for our video call app and was able to delete a shitload of code and also fix a bunch of bugs I didn't know existed because our API wasn't type safe before and just became a shell for the technology immediately, started recommending it a bunch. I built a website with my roommate called init.tips. That was what we recommend for getting started with a new web application because I kept getting the question, like, how would you start a new app? So I built this as like 
the command I would run and then the tools I would recommend you use with it. I wanted to show how to actually use it. So I streamed for the first time in a long time and built an app called Roundest, where you would vote for which Pokemon was more round. I used all of these technologies for it. It was the first ever like public showcase of the T3 stack. And it did okay. It got like a couple hundred views. Then Dan Abramov announced he wanted to do some mock job interviews in order to show what it looked like for an engineer like him to do a job interview. I'm a huge nerd about technical interviews. I did way too many, like hundreds of them at Twitch. And just, I love interview culture and how absolutely messy it is in modern times and trying to promote better interviewing practices and processes. I have a whole bunch of videos about that if people are interested. So I jumped on this opportunity and I was one of the four people who got to do a mock interview with Dan Abramov. And I don't say this often about my content. Mine was the best by like a mile, <laughs> like a lot. All of the others were your typical leak code code interviews, which someone like Dan isn't going to perform great in because he's just never did those. He built Redux and then got pulled into React, never even did an interview for them. So that didn't work for him. Whereas I had him solve somewhat real world problems with a half built example application with a real backend I had created. And not only did his ability to build and reason through what he was building come out really apparently, he was able to teach me as the interviewer quite a few things as well, which is one of the best signs from a candidate. And I had done a whole write-up because I always will do a write-up before an interview where I describe the different ways the candidate can do the interview so they can pick, give them both agency early in the interview, which helps build trust and also put them set them up for as much success as possible because you're letting them pick the path that they're the most confident in, which is what you would hope they would do as an employee. All of these things resonated really deeply with people and that video blew up. And with it, the T3 stack tutorial started to get some attention too. It wasn't even meant to be a tutorial at the time. It was just me building a dumb app because I wanted to figure out which Pokemon was least round so I could use that for a name for an internal tool. And I'm not going to ask people what's least round. I asked them what's most round and get the number at the bottom. Utter chaos blew up way more than I ever would have expected. And yeah, from that point, the term caught on largely as the way to use Tailwind, TypeScript, and TRPC together. TRPC started to catch on massively with both that video and the additional content I started to do about it and how effective it was as a solution. So it was a blog post I wrote about how Next.js wasn't type safe and TRPC is a great example of how to fix that. All of these things built into a lot of hype around this new term for this up and coming way of building a full stack type safe solutions with next and similar technologies. And then people started asking me to make it a GitHub repo, make a template, make all these things so they can use the T3 stack. And I had no desire to do that because if I did that, people would start installing Prisma on their blogs, which is not something I want to be responsible for. So I said, in my live chat at some point, like if someone wanted to build a CLI that lets you select the right tools and technologies, go do that. Sounds cool. I'm not doing that shit. Way too much work. A 16 year old kid from India named Nexel took the opportunity and did it. And he has since become an open source wizard, well known in the community for ruffling feathers and making massive contributions to crazy shit. I love that kid so much. And that project has since blown up. It gets as many invocations <laughs> as Create Remix does nowadays. So we are the four, or yeah, the fourth biggest React framework behind Create React App, Next, and Vite. We are four, and then Remix is five. So that's pretty insane for yeah. a YouTuber's side project that yeah, he didn't even build. Really, 
And I'm I'm sorry you hear that about Remix. Uh, I don't actually. I haven't been following them for a long time. Uh, are they doing fine? I think you did a video on on, on Remix uh, a couple of weeks ago, didn't you? I love Mark Dalgish. He recently joined there. He's a fucking wizard, and he's bringing Remix into the modern ages. I am relatively confident he can make it a reasonable solution, but it's just missing so much shit and had a lot of weird opinions that came from the React router days that weren't shaken quickly enough that just haven't aged great. And Next is full of a similar set of those, mostly Webpack-based, but I find that Next gets out of your way much better than a lot of other frameworks, and it doesn't get enough credit for that. Like, pretty much everything in Next is optional and opt-outable, and that's just not the case in other solutions. the the T3 stack is TypeScript... Prisma, TRPC, Tailwind, and of course, Next.js, which is like the surrounding biggest part around it. A key part is that it's meant to be very modular. It was never meant to be like these technologies and none will ever change. Like most T3 stack users have moved to Drizzle instead of Prisma now. And it's still the T3 stack. If you swap this part out, we've even updated the CLI to let you pick between the two. But the goal of the T3 stack was to represent a, a set of tools and pieces that you could swap out to have a good modular experience. It definitely is centralized around Next and TypeScript, but even TRPC is being used less and less because server components solve so many of those problems. Okay, so the, the stack is mostly built on Next.js, but how could we also get a React Native app into this setup? So how would you add Expo to the 3C stack? And maybe, maybe you're going to do it or you're not going to do it? Not only are we going to do it, we already have twice. We have a project called Create T3 Turbo, which is necessarily very different from Create T3 App, but I think it is such for good reasons. The goal of Create T3 Turbo was to demonstrate what a more complex monorepo setup looks like with multiple targets, one of which is React Native. And obviously we use Expo with that. The reason that we don't do that as part of the core Create T3 App experience is that the template has to have diverged very largely and the, and the monorepo experience isn't great unless you need it and would be a huge additional onboarding cost for people just trying to spin up a full stack next app quick. And the burden of maintaining the template to have both the monorepo version and the like single package JSON version was utter chaos. And we opted out of that in favor of having a single really good turbo repo example repo up instead. Create T3 Turbo isn't just like a good example of a React Native Expo app. It's also one of the best examples of a modern TypeScript monorepo that we've used to model things, including upload thing. And I know even employees of Vercel have used to demonstrate how to use Turbo repo and a lot of those technologies properly. The hot take that's encoded in that repo that, depending on who you talk to in the React Native world, is either very agreeable or gets me in trouble, is that I think the biggest benefit of React Native with web apps isn't that you use the same code to render UI on mobile and web. Because mobile and web are different platforms with different expectations of how you interact with and interface with them. The benefit here in terms of things being shared is that everything else can be shared and it becomes trivial to write the correct UI for the platforms you're targeting. iOS and Android are similar enough that one code base with maybe like quick paths to handle iOS or Android edge cases in one thing makes sense, but web is a different enough experience and also, nowadays, an easy enough to write experience when you have a mock and you're ready to do it, that as long as the complex logic and the complex, complex data fetching and API stuff can be easily shared between the two, it, it is pretty easy to do the right thing for all platforms. 
So the way Create T3 Turbo works is you still have a Next.js app in it that serves your API. It also serves a user experience for the web and a separate folder in the app folder that is for the mobile app that is built in React Native with Expo. And those can share the API layer through the TRPC folder. Those can share a bunch of UI components through the UI component package that we have. Those can even share a bunch of crazy state bindings. This is something I built when I was working at that music startup where we had some really complex WebSocket-based state management for like track playback states and such. And we could make that a single package and share it between the web and mobile apps trivially, and then just so build the correct UI right. for those platforms. Yeah, you're using native wind for Tailwind on Expo in the repository, just taking a look at it and Expo Router. Um, this, I, I guess what you mentioned before, this is going opposed yep. to the approach of Nate from Tamagui, who has a, like a mono repository, which I just checked out the other day, in which you you still have pretty much the same mono repository Turbo Repo setup with an Expo and Next.js app, but in his repository, everything points to like one file. Like you have the same home screen in the next folder and in the in the expo folder. And then in your packages, you're going to have that that one screen, which is using, of course, Tamagui components um, and then using like the, the Tamagui flexible layout. And of course, I think one benefit that's, that's also different to yours is he's using Solito to unify the linking from Fernando Rojo, which has also been on the podcast. Check out the episode if you want to learn more. Um, Fernando was my second or third ever guest back when I was yeah, still he, running Web Dev Wednesday as like a regular the, interview just show. the amount of packages, Moti, Dripsy, Solito, everything he's done, like incredible. But so that is the mm -hmm. approach of the Tamagui repository, which unifies the routing. So you have the same stuff, exactly the same routes on web and native. And I kind of see a point of that, especially if we're talking about universal links or app links or whatever you want to call them. So how would you handle that part of universal linking and unified routes with the create T3 turbo stack? Is this a consideration or do you just have to like proactively make sure you're using the same routes on, on web and, and native? I find that for the majority of applications, there is a big enough gap between the expectations of the mobile view and the expectations of the web view that those paths often need to be encoded differently anyways. And you can get into some really complex states, especially around stacking. like. On Twitter, it's trivial to like click a profile picture, click something they retweeted, click their profile picture, click something they retweeted, end up with a stack that's super tall. Mobile navigation isn't just one direction. Like your URL bar can only go horizontal. You can add things to the end and you can remove things from it and you can change what those things are. But mobile has an idea of vertical as well. Like once you're in one of those horizontal spots, you can also stack up and down. And those navigation paradigms are in many ways at odds. You can even make the argument that the browser is the one that's behind. But as a result, I found that most of the technologies and solutions that let one routing table and one code base determine the user experience for both platforms end up having the worst common denominator of both as like the, the quality bar. And you end up with the much more shallow routing behaviors of the web and a URL bar and the complex render paths of mobile applications and managing and it feels like i'm gimping myself on both sides to get universal links as an inherent benefit whereas i could just configure the four common paths in a json file otherwise which is how i used to do it and it was annoying but it was never too hard and with expo router being as good as it is i find it's even less hard than it's ever been and 
I've never, I, I love Fernando. Salito makes a ton of sense for what he's doing and the way he builds, where the goal of the website is to be a quick way for people who haven't installed the app yet to interface with a handful of things. If that's your use case, is people not really using the website on desktop, it's using it on a phone because they don't have the app installed yet. And you're one developer. That sounds like a good solution. But when you're trying to build high quality software and you're dealing with the native engineers that you're replacing, getting huffy at you for every single regression that the React Native version has, limiting your routing to the way URLs work is a scary scary decision for me to make. And it's why I don't I kinda, usually I go in that direction. And I want to come back to routing and expo router in a second. Just one side question, because I noticed you're a big fan of Tailwind at this point, And that's the logic conclusion is to use native wind here. What, what is your point on mm -hmm. Tamagui then instead? Because I know it gets a lot of, not hype, maybe fame. Uh, yeah, I don't know how, what to say exactly, but it's good. I tried it the other day besides the documentation, which are honestly very, very awful and don't serve the purpose of Tamagui very well. And a lot of people said they are want to use Tamagui, but are scared away because the docs are so bad and terrible. But uh, that's a different story. So um, native wind Tamagui, what's, what's your point on these different solutions? I haven't explored the modern state of things enough to give really concrete answers. My transplanted from web dev answer is that we've successfully moved away from component libraries you install as a package because they give you way too little flexibility and way too much lock-in. Like, I actually have a video. I think I should have published it 15 minutes ago. I'll probably do it after this, actually. So whenever this comes out, keep an eye out for my video that will probably be titled The Death of the UI Library. It's kind of a rehash of a topic I covered before, which is my CSS framework comparison video. There are multiple different things a UI library can do. It can describe how the UI looks, something like Bootstrap does. It can describe the behaviors of that UI, something like what Radix does. And it can describe the pieces you use to assemble in modular bits, something like what or Bootstrap does to an extent with their like utility classes, but this is more like what Tailwind does. These three sections can have overlap where something like Bootstrap is both describing how the UI looks as well as giving you these modifier classes to assemble and make certain levels of changes, but doesn't necessarily describe how these things behave because it's not doing your accordion behaviors and stuff like that. Whereas something like Material UI much more strongly believes in how things should look and how they should be interfaced with, but doesn't give you those modular pieces to do the composable style system part. The reason Tailwind has caught on is it has leaned really hard into that modular direction and it's served incredibly well as a building block to assemble whatever other parts you want. And rather than having to go all in on one of those parts by NPM installing Material UI, now you can use something like Shadcian that uses the existing behavior library of Radix, the existing modular style component system of Tailwind, and lets you assemble those into an actual component library that suits your needs for your application. And what ShadCN provides you isn't a package you install, it's source code that you put in your project that uses the right tool for the job and gives you the pieces so that you can change it and customize it however you need for your use case. This has changed how we structure our code bases in web dev significantly in short time. ShadCN UI was the most popular JavaScript repo last year, which is insane for a project you can't even NPM install to be the most popular GitHub repo in JavaScript of the year. That's 
unprecedented in our industry. And that is because of the level of control without losing the agility that you would normally associate with having to run your own component library. Tamagui, or Tamagui is modern material UI, and it's cool that that exists, but as an industry, we have moved past that, and I'm excited for mobile to catch up. Native Win seems to be the first important piece for that to happen. I haven't used it to the level where I can confidently say it's in a really good state. I know the developer on it is working his fucking ass off, and the result is really impressive. So I would personally lean into Native Win until I discover the limitations of it. This is why I... Yeah, I'm not as into agree. component libraries. I also have this feeling anymore. about component libraries as a content creator. Whenever I use them, my whole code looks like this one flavor. And that's why I decided in the end, yeah, I will just use Stylesheet because that's like the most basic thing you can do with React. And it's not messing up your whole view in, in X-Stack and Y-Stack and Cart and, and all these things that people mm -hmm. will never be able to replace again. Yep. And one of my favorite, I should say favorite, one of my spicy takes that I think people come around to is that the problem with inline styles was never that inline styles are bad. It's that there was performance issues when you did that in JavaScript land in the browser. React Native showed me just how cool inline styles could be and were a huge inspiration for how something new like StyleX works too. Tailwind was the right abstraction to give you that level of flexibility of something like inline styles, but much more consistency and rigidity in your design system while also not having performance issues on the web. And as such, I found Tailwind to... At least when I looked at Tailwind, I thought it looked horrifying and I didn't understand why anybody would want to do that. But then I figured out it was inline styles without all the negatives and have just fallen in love since. And in the little bit I've used it on yeah. mobile, um, I mean, it still I've feels pretty similar in that as way. well. And as far as I know, uh, Mark Lawler, who's the creator of Native Wind, who's now also working at Expo, is, is heavily working on the next version. I think he like skipped one major version or something going on there. Mm, yeah, so there's... Didn't know you was at Expo now, that's know, huge. Yeah. I don't have inter any internal information. This is all speculation, but people will say that it might be tied to Expo in the future and that Native wouldn't be included in Expo and something. I don't know. But also, I've seen some examples from him about doing animations work, like getting animations to work with Native Wind and then using reanimated to actually run them on, like, it was mind-blowing, so... I'm pretty sure it's going to be really interesting once once that major version mm. comes out. And I mean, the whole space is interesting. Style X, you did a video on that as well. Um, apparently, that's as far as I know, not yet working with React Native. You can only use this on the web yet. Um, so we'll see what comes out. But that brings us to Expo and the cool things Expo is doing. And I know we're running out of time, but I want to quickly talk about the Expo router. So. Expo Router, when, when this video comes out, it's probably already released with the uh, SDK 50 of Expo, and that brings the Expo Router version 3, which introduces API routes among a lot of other improvements of the Expo Router. I have been fascinated by the Expo Router and what you can do with it. As I actually, I'm, I'm thinking about doing a video, Expo Router is the next JS killer or something like, get a bit of clickbaity here. But basically it gives mobile developers API routes of which mobile developers were scared. Um, you could theoretically also build your whole application with Expo for the web. So you could have a website, you could have Expo Router, you don't need a mono repository. There are a lot of benefits. It's probably not at the level of Next.js and what you can do with Next.js, but what do you think about the how does the Expo Router fit into this whole landscape? I had only heard that this was being worked on. I didn't know it was that close. I saw like one or two tweets about it. So I'll be honest, right now, I'm just hyped to know it's happening. Like 
all I need to do a lot of the stuff I want to do is something that is co-located with the JavaScript that runs on client that can return JSON in a specific shape once it's received JSON of a specific shape. Once you give me those parts through something like an API route, I don't care what the hell you call it. If I can post to it and get something back in a type safe fashion, I'm happy enough to get the ball rolling. And the thing I'm going to go tell my co-founder as soon as this call is done is that we can finally get the expo upload thing binding running because I have been terrified to do that for a while because the little demo we had, the few people we tried really wanted to do it without a server. I will never, and you can mark my words on this, I will never recommend a production solution for uploading files that doesn't require authentication of some po- or of some form because if you do not authenticate an endpoint where users can upload files, you just built a machine to store child porn. That is all you have built. And I will never, ever enable developers to do that. As such, I will never, ever enable developers to build an upload thing integration where they can upload from a mobile device without authenticating the user in some way. That's just not a thing I am interested in providing. As such, you need to authenticate the users and you need to do that on your service, but now you have to have a service. So if you don't already have a service because you're using Firebase or Supabase, now we have to build integrations for those things, which is a nightmare. And for an increasingly small portion of our potential users, because everyone's focused on the web right now, it was incredibly hard to justify doing that. But if we can take our generic express binding that takes in a JSON blob and returns a new one, throw that into Expo Router, and just give you a random like Apple or just picture photo file picker UI component that will do the linking for you, that becomes way easier for us to maintain. And what I'm excited about here is what I've been calling... Uh, really the thing I use to describe this new trend is NPM installable infrastructure. The idea that you can install a package and since it can run on your server, that can now interface with other servers and do other things you would never want to do on the client. And the need for something like Firebase or Supabase just for the client bindings is going away. Now Supabase can just be your database or you can use a different database. And the Expo API can be the way you connect your mobile application with these other services. And if you install upload thing, now you can run that in your service, authenticate users your way, let us handle the file IO, the upload, the egress and all of that. And everyone wins because you have a safer, more maintainable application that is serving the right content to users at the right time where you own all of the parts. And that was not possible before. So I am really excited. And that it's just another one of those boxes that solutions that aren't in the TypeScript and JavaScript ecosystem, especially the React Native ecosystem, can't check. Like <laughs> yeah, I cannot imagine yeah, what doing that in Flutter would look like. Solution or working on anything like that. It's it's also. I mean, I don't know exactly how it technically works with the API routes. You still have to deploy something somewhere because you you don't have these API routes in the app. That's uh, probably going co- to cause a lot of confusion. Just like Expo eject is not a thing anymore. Um, it would be easier for me to help them solve that education problem than it would be for me to embrace the current chaos and enable authentication through Firebase as part of our service. I would rather die on the hill that mobile devs need to learn how to deploy a server than ever figure out how to support upload thing on mobile without one. So I I guess Expo just got a new free developer advocate because we need this that badly. So that that's what I think about this change. It is going to force a lot of mobile devs yeah, to accept that servers too. are so real and important, and live, I'm, I'm excited to see sure how that goes SDK for them. SDK 50 will be released, and with Expo SDK 50, Expo Router version 3 should be released. Um, quick, just 
other things are that they, I think, pulled out the head tag. So you can have like a head tag for SEO stuff in your in your routes. And you get like all the cool things. Um, they really want to make it as easy as possible to ship universal applications with React Native. At least that's my feeling. And Evan is already also working or planning on, on V4. I don't know what exactly is happening in V4. Um, I think he mentioned something, but I'm, I'm pretty sure it's going to be awesome. But the API routes are just an incredible way to get started and um, a super great improvement to Expo and React Native and the whole tool set for developers. Absolutely, especially with the AI craze. I've managed to not mention AI almost at all this entire podcast. I hope y'all are proud of me. But the number of people who are trying out new user experiences, building AI applications that recognize that mobile apps are one of the best interfaces to do these experiments requires agile, quick building and responding applications that feel native, run well, and have integrations with all these tools that exist in the web dev ecosystem. If there's an NPM package for OpenAI, it's way easier to use that than it is to hit an obscure API endpoint and write all your definitions forward in Swift. And that agility combined with something like this with Expo Router is going to allow these developers to build a full stack mobile application from scratch faster than ever. And those developers will win even if other solutions are having more apps built in them, the ones that can respond to their users' needs the fastest will be the ones to win. And from everything I've seen, heard, and expect, that will continue to be React Native. Yeah, I agree. And uh, for all kids out there, always put your secret keys uh, in an environment and don't in your native application. They're not safe. Even if you use a .env file with React Native, they are not safe in there. I learned it the hard way because I built a, a little AI application, which actually was a very popular video. Uh, but that popularity also made me aware that I did it just like that because it was an easy test. And one day I woke up to the uh, notification of OpenAI that my spending threshold was reached. So, yeah. You can't tell everyone this. This is how I get my free OpenAI keys. <laughs> Wait, no. Flutter devs, it's still okay to embed your API environment variables. Just put them in a file in your binary. Like, it just it gets encrypted, I promise. Just, just do it, okay? Like, I need my keys. Also, DM me the name of your app when you do that, and ideally a binary of it, too. <laughs> but, but that mistake gave me two good videos. So the first one was how I build an AI app, and the second was how to protect your keys in a React Native application. <laughs> so, yeah. I, I hate that I'm at that same point, too, where, like, an outage happens, and my first thought is, shit, an outage. And my immediate second thought is, oh, that's some good content. <laughs> All right, this has been an epic conversation about a lot of great topics. I'm, I'm so thankful you were here. Um, I just want to thank you for, for three more things. I want to thank you for the T3 stack, which is really incredible. I want to thank you that you made a lot of developers aware that CO2 is actually uh, a bad thing and you should open your windows, uh, as the German people say, lüften, lüften, lüften. Yes, please open them wide. Don't open them just with a little... Yeah, I don't know what the number See means. See that? I'm in a totally safe range. I've been keeping an eye on it this whole time. I was over a thousand before this started. And I turned on my fan and opened the door so that I'd have enough air to not go crazy while doing this interview. Yeah, so keep an eye on your CO2 keep levels. An eye. And the third thing I'm thankful is that you actually gave me the confidence to finally have a mustache. Um, your you're and the Primogen are very great examples. Before, I've been just the German developer, and, and now uh, people call me things that nobody in Germany would be called who has a mustache. But uh, anyway, that's a different topic. <laughs> it sticks out more for the thumbnails, too. My click-through rates went up a meaningful amount once I grew it. It's annoying, but it worked. Okay, thank you so much for taking the time. Um, just to wrap it up, where can people find more about you and the stuff that you do? T3.gg, search Theo Dev on YouTube, and you'll find some interesting stuff. I'm always complaining about something. 
I have a lot of content I'm really proud of coming out in the next couple of weeks. I just made one of the best videos I've ever done about the NPM everything package. Check that out if you want to see the most chaotic way to break NPM. It's a very fun deep dive. I put way too much effort into that video. Please watch it. And one more thing. I'm working on a developer relations course coming very soon because the current state of DevRel is an utter shit show and I shouldn't be so unique in understanding how it works now. It's time to rethink how developers, companies, and influencers work with each other to show developers how cool all of the things we're building are. And the way to do that isn't pretending that your tweets will go viral. The course is coming out soon. Sign up for the waiting list on devrel.fyi if you're interested. Yeah, that's awesome. We're going to put all of that in the show links. And uh, t3.gg is also a great place if you have any questions about Flutter. There's an FAQ which uh, <laughs> answers the question if you should use Flutter a few times. So thank you, Theo, for coming on. And I will shamelessly end this with your words. Peace, nerds. Peace, nerds. <laughs>